Thanks, Tim, for that gracious introduction. I love being with you guys. This is awesome. This has been on my calendar for a long time. I don't know when we set this, but it's been circled, and I've been looking forward to being here with you all. And when Tim was doing that, you know, I always rejoice to hear about children that are being born, and especially for couples that have had a hard time, because my wife and I experienced that. And, uh, and then God blessed us. But you caught me off guard a little bit. I should have listened all the way to the end. You said they had a hard time getting pregnant, and now they're having two a year. <laughs> two a year later, okay? So anyway, two a year would have been a great trick, don't you think? Oh, pretty amazing. Some of you girls are saying, yeah, well, let's just get that done. And others, no, 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 no. No way do I want to do that. And uh, Tim, you can't get to 40 till you've been three, man. So three is awesome. You guys have been in existence and you've come through some amazing things. God's faithfulness is, is remarkable. His fingerprints are all over what I see happening here. And so thank you so much. And thank you for the, the light that you provide here in the city of Phoenix and for being a ministry partner with us uh, and many other churches. It is truly a joy uh, to be a part of the ministry of Phoenix Bible Church. Uh, you know, one of the times I was here before, I may have mentioned a guy by the name of Joe, but I just want to tell you, it, it so ties so well to this passage, and I can't remember what I said before. I doubt you can either. So maybe, maybe the story, I don't know. Anyway, there's a guy who we hired to be our worship pastor, and he came on. His name was Jim, and about two months after Jim came on, it was a marvelous thing. We're excited. He was our first full-time worship pastor, and, and he was guiding us into a whole new season of worship, and and God in creative and progressive ways, and we were so thankful that he was there. And then one night he falls down, and he falls into, a, not a coma, but into a seizure at home. Now, his family, honestly, because he was such a big cut-up, thought he was kidding. You know, and the dog grabbed his foot and was jerking it around, but he was really in serious place because it was discovered that he had a brain tumor. And for four and a half years, we walked through this whole issue of a brain tumor with him, well, in the process he had to take, because of the surgeries, he had to take some medication that would not allow him to drive, so a number of us would go pick him up and take him to church or other places. And, and one day I was taking Jim home, and we drove past one of his neighbors, whose name is Joe. Joe was a captain with Phoenix Fire Department, and he was out in the yard, you know, doing some work on his sprinkler system. And so as we went by, we waved at him. And I knew of Joe through Jim's comments about just how great they had been to their family during this really, really hard time. And, and so anyway, when I dropped Jim off and I'm driving back by, I just pulled my truck over to the side of the curb and it rolled down my window. And you know, like guys do, I started bantering a little bit with it. Hey, man, don't you know it's too hot to be doing that stuff this time of day? And yada, yada, yada. And he came back with some, some smart comment as well. And, and so anyway, I said, no, actually, the reason I pulled over is I wanted to thank you for you and your family and the other neighbors, how great you have been to Jim through this time of the surgeries. And with that, he stopped what he was doing. He walks over to my truck and he says, yeah, well, no, you got that all wrong. He's been great to us and he's such a benefit to us to have him in the community. And, and we just hate what he's going through. And we talked a little bit. And he says, well, like, are you his brother or something? And I said, yeah, kind of. You know, uh, we really have known each other for a long time, but we work at the same church. And, and then he basically said this. He says, you know, I've been thinking I, I ought to come. I want to come to that church. I said, you should. And he says, but you got to know, I'm not very religious. And I said, that's awesome. We aren't either. <laughs> and with that, the ice just broke. 
you know, and we had a great conversation. And, and he said, you know, don't be surprised if I walk in, but the roof is probably going to fall in the day that I come into a church because that just, you know, I'm not sure what God's going to think about that. But I said, you really ought to come. And he did. And Joe and his wife came to faith in Jesus as a result of that some months later. It came out that he was having a significant and had a significant problem with drugs and alcohol. God delivered him amazingly from that long-term addiction. And every day he walked in sobriety after that, still battling, but walking in sobriety because of the person of Jesus in his life. And God even used him to help us start the Celebrate Recovery Program as our church. And so which this last year celebrated 15 years, Tim, and that 15 years, it was the longest continuous running Celebrate Recovery ministry in the state of Arizona. God used Joe in some amazing ways, but God used Jim to point Joe to Jesus. And so anyway, it's, it's an amazing thing, but his words have always stuck with me. I'm not very religious. Because when you talk to people, they say, well, I'm not religious. What do they mean by that? They don't know the ins and outs. They don't know the practices. They don't know the time to stand up and sit down and the right words to say and all those types of things. And that's a common statement. But I got to tell you, God has not called us to religion. God has called us to a relationship with him. And there's all the difference in the world between those two things. Now, having said that, there are religious practices I don't like that word, but that's what they are. But Jesus even talks about some of those. And I would like to say that they're different. They are they're practices that promote spiritual growth, spiritual growth and the relationship that we have with God. They were never designed to help us to become a Christian, but they were designed to help us grow as a Christian. And in the Sermon on the Mount, I love this. One of my professors in seminary, and you know who I'm talking about, Tim, because we share the same heritage at Dallas, and his name is Dwight Pentecost. Don't you think that's a great name for somebody that's teaching in a seminary or Bible college or something? Like Pentecost. Yeah, just... So anyway, he really is an amazing guy, and I had a class with him, and one of the things he talked about was in the book of Matthew, where the Sermon on the Mount is, and he used to say, Matthew was written to answer this question, if Christ is the king, then where's the kingdom? If Christ is the king, where's the kingdom? Because Jesus said, my kingdom's not of this world. Now, Dr. Pentecost, and I believe, and, and many other good Bible teachers, that there will come a time when God's kingdom will be on earth. It's just not yet. Now, you can take it to the bank. It's already, but not yet, if you understand. God is sovereign. He's still ruling in the heavenlies, even though there's coming a time. But I believe in this passage, as many others in the Sermon on the Mount, the things that Jesus is teaching is to say, this, these are the characteristics of a kingdom citizen. These are characteristics of a Christian. These are characteristics of the man or the woman that seeks to follow me. This is not how we become a Christian. This is how we live as we are Christians and want to show people Jesus in us and through us. So when we look at these, there are some spiritual practices. Some have called them disciplines. A discipline is something that in, whereby you can grow, you can learn. And we'll talk about that in a second. But basically, it's things like this. It's things like giving. It's things like prayer. It's things like fasting. And that's what Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 6. Now, let me ask you this. Who's the most religious person that you know? Who would be the most religious person that you would know or know of? There could be a lot of different answers. Someone who maybe is generous, 
You know, I know people who practice reverse tithing. Instead of giving 10% of what God's given, they give 90% and they live on 10%. Now, they couldn't start out doing that, but over their life, they've gotten to that point. I'm not close to that. that that's, that's amazing. What about prayer? People that spend hours in prayer. It was written of Martin Luther. He said, I have so much to do today that I've got to spend the first three hours in prayer. Moses think, I've got so much to do, I can't pray. Guys like Martin Luther and others spent hours on David Brainerd was a, a missionary to the North American Indians, to Native Americans in the Northeast. And there was one day he was so intent in prayer in some of his biographies, he talked about how it had snowed while he was praying. He didn't even know it had snowed. I'm like, wow, I hear those types of stories, and that doesn't encourage me. That makes me feel guilty. I'm not even close to that. Maybe it's someone who's fasting. Well, Jesus fasted for 40 days. I have a hard time fasting for 40 minutes. And I grew up in a part of the country where when we finish breakfast, we're talking about what we're having for lunch. And when we finish lunch, we're talking about what we're going to do for supper or dinner. So, so 40 days, I know people that have fasted for 40 days. I haven't. Furthermore, I don't have any desire to. But when you know people that are like this, like, well, what's wrong with me? Am I not very committed you know, when we think of those people, we think in terms of, wow, that's incredible. But Jesus is saying this. It's not about what other people do, and it's not even about what other people think of you or of me. This is about between you and God, between how he sees us and how we see him, because it's ultimately about a relationship with him. Jesus said this, in Matthew 5.20, the chapter just before this, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, you will never see the kingdom of heaven. You know why he said that? Because the entrance exam to heaven is not 90%, 94%, 95%, 98%, 99%. You know what the entrance exam to heaven is? 100%. Absolutely sin-free. There's only one person that could ever describe that. That's the person, Jesus. That's why he died on a cross. He died on a cross because to pay a debt he didn't owe to pay our debt, which we could not repay. No matter how religious a person gives, you can't get a do-over. You can't go back and start perfectly. And Jesus was saying, even if you could, your attitude oftentimes stinks. Though you may outwardly conform to this image what about the inside? Because that's also sin when we don't have the right attitude. And the scribes and the Pharisees were externally very, very religious people. They were very good people. They were meticulous in keeping all the dots and the, dotting the I and crossing the T in the law. But that didn't mean their heart was right. Matter of fact, their heart was far from him. That's why Jesus said, unless your righteousness is of a different kind and it exceeds, it's internal as well as external, you will never see the kingdom of heaven because it takes perfection and all of us have fallen short. You know, there are these religious routines, though, that we can't deny, and Jesus says this. He says, when you give to the needy, when you pray, when you fast, not if, He's assuming this is going to happen as a normal part of life. And he says, when you do this, don't do it like the hypocrites. Don't do it like the religious leaders. Don't do it for those who want to be seen 
by those out here and patted on the back and applauded because of how spiritual, how religious, how righteous they are. Here's why Jesus says this. In Matthew 6, 1, the very first verse that David read to us today. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. That's the motive. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. In other words, it gains us nothing in God's economy. Oh, it gains the applause and the approval of people, but are we really seeking the applause and the approval of people? And what he's going to say here is what one of my favorite authors, Oz Guinness, said, you and I ultimately serve before an audience of one, Jesus, whose opinion trumps all others. That's what this is about. When we give, are we pleasing Jesus? When we pray, are we pleasing Jesus? When we fast, are we pleasing Jesus? What does it do for our relationship with him? That's the guts of the matter. Dallas Willard wrote a book called The Spirit of the Disciplines. And Richard Foster, and I'm going to quote him in a few minutes, wrote a good book on the celebration of discipline. I didn't really like the book because it pushed too many of my buttons. It was too convicting in a lot of ways. And I didn't really quite get the point. And then Dallas Willard, who taught at University of Southern California in the philosophy department there for many years and has written many different books, wrote a book called The Spirit of the Disciplines. And I think it encapsulates what we're talking about here in preparation for this. He goes to 1 Timothy chapter 4, where he says, Paul's talking to Timothy, his young protege in the faith. Great name, right, Tim? Okay. He says, train yourself for righteousness. Train yourself for righteousness. And the word to train is the same word from which we get gymnasium. Go, work out. Learn the drills. You may not like the drill. It may, be, it may require great self-control and great... Dis that's the point. But you're learning discipline in one area that can be transferred to others. There's a conditioning that's going on that you may not have just in your flesh or in your immaturity as a follower of Jesus. You don't go out and run a marathon the first day out. You have to build up to it. And a lot of us wonder what's wrong in the Christian life when we can't just go out and do this. I had the privilege of playing basketball in high school and college and some other sports as well, but i got to tell you, there were drills that I absolutely hated. Anybody know what suicides are? Oh, yeah, I see that hand. Do I see another? Okay. You start it for the, for the sake of those that don't, and for the sake that do, I'm sorry, you might want to throw up even as you recall some bad times like this. But you start at the end line, and you go to the free throw line. Then you go back to the end line. Then you go to the, to the point line, to the timeline. Then you come back to the end. Then you go to half court, and then you come back. Then you go to the, you get the picture, and you do that ad nauseum, Literally. I got to tell you, I hated it when I was doing those. But I'm so glad for a coach that drilled that into us because when we got into the fourth quarter of the game, it made a difference. When we got into the last half of the season, it made a difference to have your legs under and your wind. It's like these disciplines, these practices are training for life, training for spiritual life, training for maturity to grow up in our relationship with Christ. Okay, go on in verse 2. What he's going to say is this. That's all introduction. Aren't you glad? Okay, spiritual discipline. Here you go. 
In, God, in chapter verses 2 through 4, we're going to see that God repays genuine generosity. Look at what he says. Thus, when you give to the needy, sell no trumpet before them, as do the hypocrites, the scribes and the Pharisees, as they do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Hit the pause button there. What does that say, tell you? What's their motive? What's driving this? When they, they're waving the flag and saying, look at me, look at what I'm doing. I am being very generous to help this poor, downcast person. What was their motive? That they might be noticed by others. Now, I have a hard time with my own motives. I can't speak to yours. Jesus can and did. Jesus is the one who's calling them out, right? That, they're doing this, that they might be seen by others. And he says, truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But you, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. What's he saying here? He's not saying literally, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That's just a figure of speech. What's he saying? Don't point attention to yourself. Point it to God. God knows. That person knows. Is that not enough? Should be. Not too long ago, and, and this is not the only time, but my wife and I were invited to an event. It was a fundraiser, and it was a, it was a very philanthropic thing. It was a good organization. It was not a Christian organization, but many of the students that received benefit from this had a personal testimony of Jesus and what they said, but the whole evening was about competition. Who can outgive the other person giving? And they raised over $2 million that night. And I praise God for that because it went to a good thing. But I was very, very uncomfortable with all the competitiveness. And quite candidly, my wife and I did give, but we didn't give that night. I didn't want to get caught up in all of that stuff. I didn't want to give because of what someone else was thinking or saying, good or bad. We went home, prayed about it, determined what it was God wanted us to do, and we gave. But I got to tell you, that whole environment was very uncomfortable with. Not long ago, I had someone call me, and they told me about someone, actually, that I had the privilege to lead to Jesus some time ago. And yet, this woman is now going through liver cancer. It's very aggressive, and unless God steps in and does a miracle, there's no healing from this, and it's advanced. But they said, you know, they have incredible needs financially. We want to do something to help this family but we don't want to give it directly to them. Can we do it through your church? Now, why would they want to give anonymously like that? I think they're wanting to follow Jesus. I think that's exactly what they're trying to do, not that they didn't get the praise, but that God did, and these people were helped. When we give that way, God is honored, and people are helped. The beauty of this. Now, God repays that. I don't know if it will be exactly Financially, a lot of times you give, you don't give in order to get back. That's wrong motives. But God does repay in many, many different ways as far as with the heart, the quality of that, the desire, the ability to do something good for someone else and, and to know that it makes a difference. God also hears authentic prayers. This is verses 5 through 13. A couple of things about this. We're going to look at two different aspects about what makes an authentic prayer. Every religion teaches about prayer. Everyone has some form of prayer. And in America, most people believe in prayer, even those that are irreligious. 
People have been questioned by Barna and others in Gallup. The ranges for 75% to 92% of people question say they believe in prayer. And 2016, there was a Gallup survey that said 79% of Americans pray for healing. 87% pray for healing of others. There's prayer, but is that prayer really being heard by God? Because a lot of times people think they're being heard by the words that they say or that even if they're good at praying, that other people will affect them. And yet, few of us actually really pray. Bill Hybels, who's the pastor at Willow Creek up in Illinois and could be probably a CEO of any Fortune 500 company, he's an amazing guy, amazing leader, uh, but he was saying, you know, prayer to him as a type A personality, a very driven person, was frankly, I knew about prayer and I knew we should do this, but too many times I felt like it was an embarrassing interruption to accomplishing what God had called us to do. And he said, until I started studying about prayer, and then I did something really radical, I started praying more, and God transformed my heart. He transformed my life. I saw many answers to prayer, but the qualitative aspect of my relationship with God was an immensely improved because we're having this conversation. See, it's not just what's done publicly. Oftentimes, it's, it's privately. Here's what he says first. Verse 5, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who is in secret will reward you. Is he saying there again that it's wrong to pray in public? No. It's wrong to pray in public to be heard and applauded by other people as to what wonderful prayer you gave and how theologically correct it was and how I, 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 there's just, you know, I, it's amazing to listen to you pray. Oh, you God, you're storming the gates of heaven. You know, well, there is one person that I know that, that was uh, in the Dallas area and was leading a Bible study and actually then recited the Lord's Prayer in Greek. Now, you tell me why anybody would recite the Lord's Prayer in Greek in Dallas, Texas. Is it to be heard by God? No. It's more to be heard by people. Oh, it's amazing. Something seems wrong with that picture to me. And her life bore it out that there were some real gaps later on. He's not saying don't pray in public. He's saying don't pray in order to be applauded by people. That's a real challenge, Tim, for you, for me, for anybody that stands up and preaches the word. We always have this challenge about, oh, what are people going to think? Are they going to think that, boy, you hit a home run? Or are they going to think, I hope you don't come back for a while? You know, I mean, that's a part of the human condition, that we care about others and we care about what people think and and especially those that are in ministry, we care perhaps and oftentimes too much. But God has called us to rise above that and to live in such a way as we're living before, as I've already said, an audience of one. Who's the one? Who's the one? Jesus. The audience of one whose opinion trumps all others. That's a great swing thought for life. It's a great paradigm to live by. And that's what he's saying here. Get alone with God. Ultimately, prayer is between you and God. 
And if anybody's around, they're simply eavesdropping. All right? And that's not a bad thing necessarily. Uh, that's how we teach our children how to pray. That's how we may teach each other. But the main thing is get alone with God. Have personal time with him. Because prayer at the end of the day, bottom line, is of communication with God. And it's personal communication or conversation with God. Jesus, look at his life. Especially go through the Gospel of Luke and see how frequently Jesus got away to be alone with the Father. And see how frequently he did this. Oswald Sanders in his book, Spiritual Leader, says, Prayer was the dominant feature of Jesus' life and a recurring part of his teaching. To Jesus, prayer was not a hasty add-on, but a joyous necessity. It's the air that we breathe. Prayer is not only a personal conversation. Prayer is an honest conversation. If you read through the Lord's Prayer... Matthew 6, verses 7 and following. And I know you've studied this before, so I'm not going to try to exegete this passage. Just know that it's like he's dealing with honest, everyday issues of life. It's an honest conversation with God. He knows what we need even beforehand. And when he says, when you pray, verse 7, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. He's saying it's not the words you say. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people who say, I just don't know the right words to say. That's a common response, but it's a wrong response. It's not the words. It's the heart. It's what's in our head. God knows already. Just be honest with him. Tell him what's there. Tell him what your joys are and let him sanctify them. Tell him what your fears are and let him comfort you. Tell him where you are. And when he said pray like this, he didn't say there's nothing wrong again with praying the Lord's Prayer, but he didn't give this to say recite these words. He said pray like this. I'm going to give you a model prayer. Look at what he says, our Father in heaven, holy, hallowed be your name. Praise you, God. You're God, I'm not. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How many times even in the last months and weeks have I cried out, and I bet you have, God, what's going on? This world is crazy. I long for the day when your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, straighten this mess out. How long before you come back? You know, things like that. Because there's something within us that longs for righteousness to reign and to rule and for justice to be undone. And when we see injustices and unrighteousness and evil personified, there's something within us that cries out and says, it shouldn't be this way. And then we get angry at one another because we don't all agree on the solution. That shouldn't be this way either. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. God, I, I need to eat. I need a paycheck. I need a, a, a sale. I need, give us this day our daily bread. Let's ask him as a benevolent, loving, heavenly father for what we need. And forgive us our debts. So we've also forgiven our debtors. God, forgive me. It's the need I have in my heart. The humility to admit when I'm wrong and the grace to receive your forgiveness. And the willingness to give that to others that have sinned against me. As I've received, I want to give. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. See, this is just an honest prayer. 
It's going with the heart and, and it's saying, God, here's where I am. Here's who I am. And I'm pouring it out. And, and God can interpret that. Don't worry about saying the right words. Just tell him what's there. Be honest with him. It's between you and God. And God honors that. You know, an example of this. I, I like what Henry Nouwen or Henri Nouwen said this. Prayer is a radical conversion of all mental processes because in prayer we move away from ourselves our worries, our preoccupation, and our self-gratification. And we direct all that we recognize as ours to God in simple trust that through his love, all will be made new. This amazing guy, man of faith, his name is George Mueller, who lived in the 1800s in Bristol, England. He had a concern about all the orphans that were on the streets. Didn't know what to do, so he and his wife started taking orphans into their home. From that very humble beginning and through much prayer was bathed, God used this man to care for over 10,000 orphans in England to establish 117 schools, mostly for those orphans. And you know, he never asked anybody directly for anything, and God provided. Sometimes it was, uh, you're saying, man, I have a hard time taking care of two kids, three kids, four kids, whatever it is. I, I, how would you like to be caring for 10,000 orphans? God provided. And sometimes it was they didn't have any food to put on the table. And he said, set the table anyway. We're praying and asking God. And a milk truck would break, not truck, but wagon would break down. Or someone carrying bread. It would literally give them that day their daily bread. Sometimes people brought money by saying, I have no idea why, but God impressed on me. You need this 2,000 pounds. God provided in remarkable ways. God rewards prayers that are genuine, that are honest with him. And God also rewards properly motivated fasting. Look in verse 16 through 18. We don't have much time to touch on this, and you're going, whew, good, thank God. Okay? I know lunch is coming up, and we don't want to like to talk about this. And we, yeah, but here it is, okay. And when you fast, oh, when? I can't remember the last time I did. Okay. When you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Jesus, again, acknowledges their wrong motives, right? They're doing this so that people will think they're super spiritual, and that's the wrong motive. He goes on to say, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. It's the approval of people. But when you fast... Anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in heaven or in secret. And your Father who seeks in secret will reward you. See the picture of that? There's so many different ways as, as far as uh, types of fast. Food's the primary one, but in 1 Corinthians 7, there's also a fast for a season from sexual relations with one's mate, with their spouse but it's only by mutual consent and it's only for a limited period of time for the purpose of fasting unto the Lord. A fast could be from social media. A fast could be from electronics. A fast could be from all sorts of things that tend to have control over us. They can be good things, but for a season, we say, to focus on the Lord, we're going to step away from this. That's the purpose of a fast. There's a lot of benefits from that. A fast can reveal the things, Richard Foster says, that control us, that can remind us that we're dependent upon God 
for sustenance. Remember when Jesus fasted for 40 days? He said, it's, I, have, I, I am living by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Another time he said, I have food to eat that you know not of. It's a big part of it. It helps us keep balance in life. It's training in self-control, what we talked about before. Because if you discipline yourself in this area, then you possibly will have the ability to say no to some other sin that comes down the pike later on. But it's all about a personal relationship. I want to just say at the the conclusion of the message here that one of my heroes of the faith is my mother-in-law, my wife's mother. Uh, When she died a few years ago, like four or five years ago, I lost my greatest prayer supporter. And she practiced giving. She was very generous. She was a widow for 25 years, and she practiced great generosity. She also practiced prayer. She had a phenomenal prayer life, and she shared the gospel with so many people. And and yet, and I'm sure she never said anything about it, and I'm sure she also fasted regularly as a part of her prayer life. But the key thing was the relationship, not the practices. For 25 years, she lived alone. And there was one night she had such a close relationship with Jesus, she really talked to him, loved hearing from him. There was one night there in East Tennessee that there was an earthquake, and she awoke with a start because of the shaking of dishes on the wall and the windows rattling. She woke up, and her very first statement, I kid you not, was this, Lord Jesus, is that you? She lived in such an expectation that he would be coming back and praying for that. There was one night convicts escaped from a local prison that were there, and people called her and said, hey, come stay with us because the whole community. Now she said, no, I'm going to go to bed. She checked her doors, locked them, went to bed. I mean, that was the type of personal relationship that she had with the Lord. One night in the fall, she had had to turn the heater on. It was the first time the heater had been turned on. And so she smelled smoke, and it was in the basement of the house, which she couldn't get to from in the house. She had to go outside, and she was pretty old at this point. I know. Anyway, everybody has a different definition of pretty old is, okay? (laughs) But there were slippery steps that she would have to go down, and it was really hard, and she was scared about that. She thought maybe the house was on fire, the furnace, but she couldn't. And so she prayed. And as she was praying, she sensed the Lord say to her, Well, Mildred, why don't you just go to the garage and get in your truck and pull around and shine the lights on the door into the garage area under the house and raise the door and you can see whether the furnace is okay or not. Something like your partner or your spouse or your husband might do. God was that to her. He was her husband for 25 years. There was such a precious personal relationship. I got to tell you, I look at that and I marvel at it and I'm thankful for it. Today we've been talking about these different practices. Jesus talked about them and it's not about what other people think. It's about Jesus and it's between you and him. It's not about religious actions. It's about a relationship. Remember I said, this is not how you become a Christian. This is what we do as a Christian. You might be here this morning. You're saying, I I would love to have a relationship like that, but I don't. I got to tell you, I I pray and sort of feels like it bounces right off the ceiling. I'm not sure anybody's there. I even give at times, and I don't think it does any good. That makes my bank account look worse. And, you know, fasting, who wants to do that? 
I got to tell you, part of the issue is don't focus on the practice. You might be trying to live like a Christian before you have become a Christian. Well, what does that mean? I'm glad you asked. It means this, that a man or woman acknowledges that there's a God who exists, who wants to have a relationship with you. But it's also acknowledging that he's holy, I'm not. So I don't have this relationship. There seems to be something blocking. There is something blocking. It's called my sin. And anything short of perfection is sin. Whether it's my attitudes or my actions. But it's also acknowledging that he loves us so much that he didn't leave us in our sin, but he sent Jesus Christ to die on a cross, not for his sins, but for ours, for mine, for yours. And then three days later, he was miraculously and gloriously, mysteriously raised from the dead to show he had the power to forgive sins. He was not just another religious leader, but he was truly God. You know you can believe all of that and still not be a Christian? Satan believes all those things because he knows they're true. There's still one thing lacking. That's to act on what we say we believe in faith to receive the gift of forgiveness that God offers in Jesus, to trust in him alone for the forgiveness of our sins. And he promises that anyone who does, he will not turn away. I don't care what you've done. The only unforgivable sin is to reject the offer of forgiveness in Jesus. I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. Would you just bow your heads, close your eyes, mostly humble your heart, because it's not about the posture of the body. It's more about the posture of the heart. And I want to, just a phrase at a time, lead you through a prayer. The words, again, are not important, but the intent of the heart is. I'm going to lead you through these words. And if these words reflect the desire of your heart, do you hear what I said? If these words reflect the desire of your heart, if the Spirit of God is speaking to you, then just simply say them silently to God. He'll hear them, and he'll respond. I'd suggest you start out by this, saying, God, I know that you exist. And I believe you want to have a relationship with me. But I admit, I am a sinner. My thoughts and my actions come so far short of your standards. I know it's my sin that has separated me from you but I believe that you still love me so much that you sent Jesus to die for my sins. And I also believe he was raised from the dead. So by faith in Jesus Christ alone, I ask him to come into my life and to forgive me of my sins and to make me the kind of person that you want me to be. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.